white and confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. It's now fall in America, which means football. A midterm election is upon us, and many of our family holidays are just around the corner, like Thanksgiving, which is a time when many people return home to visit with family and eat a delicious meal with the people that they love. Our elections and our dinner tables have become more contentious over time, as many studies have now shown increasing levels of partisan animosity related to these political and personal events. Many Americans have been concerned that our country is on the brink of losing its democracy, and studies have shown that there's a growing acceptance of political violence. So how do we stop this? Is there a way to stop this process, to stop what we're finding ourselves in. So today I've invited Jan Vogel on the show to talk about his work with the Polarization and Social Change Lab at Stanford University around this exact question. Jan is a PhD candidate in sociology whose research studies intergroup and interpersonal relationships with two guiding questions. First, what causes people's willingness to harm others and defend inequalities? Second, how can personal or societal change be achieved that increases equality or reduces harm? Jan is also interested in a meta-scientific questions about how to make scientific progress more reliable. His research has been published in journals such as the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Nature Human Behavior, and Psychological Science and has been featured in newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post. So first, Jan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for uh, for having me on. I very much look forward to to talking about this with you. It's so nice to meet you. So I invited you on the show today to talk a little bit more about your research and the current state of American politics. And it seems like right now there are many candidates who are still denying that the 2020 election was valid. So I guess we should start there. Why is this dangerous that that there are candidates who are denying this? Yeah, so I think this is dangerous because in our research, we we oftentimes um, like think about uh, politics and, and elections as coming down to like, potentially coming down to a conflict of principles and then personal preferences who, in the best case, align with each other. But for example, in the case of uh, democratic principles, it can be the case that you are faced with a choice between in-party candidates or a candidate from the party that you typically support versus an out-party candidate whom you don't really like that much. But then your in-party candidate does something that you also don't really like so much, right? <laughs> For example, um, breaking with uh, with the democratic principles, and you are faced with a choice: um, Do I like live up to my own principles and pick a candidate whom I don't really support for a lot of other reasons, or do I let my democratic principles slide and still stick with my own candidate? And it becomes even more dangerous in uh, in a climate of misinformation because I may not even realize that um, that in voting for a certain candidate, I I 
undermine these democratic principles, right? So like, like one question is the trade-off between democratic principles and my and my feelings towards one party and another. And then yet another is first to to have an accurate uh, uh, accurate understanding of who is breaking democratic principles and who is not. And with so many Republican candidates uh, on the ballot this November, this question of misinformation as as coming prior to the choice between democratic principles and uh, and liking or like favorability for different candidates is uh, is extremely relevant. Yeah, I think so too. Now. I gave a little bit of a teaser at the beginning regarding the lab that you're part of at Stanford. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the experimental studies that you've been doing there. Can you tell us like what's been going on there? How did this come to be? Yeah. So um, I'm in the lab for four years now, um, coming up towards the end of my, uh, my time in the PhD program there. And like, since since I've joined the lab, we have like tried to develop interventions that can be used to reduce polarization in different ways. And you know, polarization is a term that is thrown thrown around a lot. And so there are there are different forms of of polarization that we are trying to uh, trying to understand the causes of and then find potential solutions for. One of them is uh, attitudinal polarization, so that we are trying to um, enable interventions that are more effective in uh, reaching out to to people with with different ideologies. And another set of interventions that we do is trying to reduce effective polarization, which is a strong dislike for supporters of the other side that may or may not be, be rooted in attitudinal disagreements. It can also be, be rooted in a, in a whole lot of other factors. And at some point, we thought that like we were making progress, but it was a very slow and incremental progress. And we felt that some of the issues at stake were so urgent that we wanted to do a study where we would try to unite resources as much as possible. And that's why we started uh, what we call the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. So that's a project, a team science project, where we put out an open call to researchers, practitioners, but also just normal, normal citizens in the US and around the world to send us their best idea for how to improve anti-democratic attitudes, support for partisan violence, and partisan animosity. And, you know, like, we, like when we started the project, we were very concerned if we would get enough ideas from people. But, um, you know, like, uh, like in uh, my colleagues and I invested a lot of hours in like holding workshops and trying to explain how the how the process would work so that as as little background knowledge for how to conduct studies was needed to submit that idea because we thought there were so many people on the ground who have realized that that this is a problem whom we also wanted to be able to uh, submit and in the end we got 252 ideas which was great so then we were faced with another kind of problem which is that we didn't have enough funding to to test all of these 252 ideas. So 
we relied on a on a board of of experts in this field, both academic experts and practitioners, who reviewed these uh, these interventions for us and with their help selected the what we thought were the um, 25 most promising interventions. And then you know we we ran one of the largest um, social science experiments to test all of these 25 interventions at the same time so that we could not only find out what works relative to what we call a control condition or what one could think of as like a baseline value and um, but also to figure out which one works best right because we oftentimes in research don't have a good idea of like how do like different interventions compare to each other and yeah like that's uh that's what we did and um maybe we can dive uh dive more into the into the results <laughs> absolutely so i was really impressed for all of the listeners i came across a piece uh that jan was on at the monkey cage and a couple of the interventions were mentioned there but what i was struck by was the number of people that took place in these studies. So it was like, it was over 32,000, right? That's right. Yeah. That's insane. So what did, how did you recruit all of these individuals? Yeah. So all, all of the credit to, uh, to my uh, advisor and, um, and uh, person who, who, who directed the, uh, the challenge, uh, Professor Rob, Rob Willer here at Stanford, um, who, who, who got us the funding to uh, to run this study? Which, uh, as you can imagine, for like thirty two thousand participants, you need a, a lot of money to fairly pay them all. And then we worked together with a with a survey company called Bovitz, who provided us with a representative sample of American partisans um, according to standard demographic benchmarks. And they, in turn, had to work together with uh, with two. Um, partner uh, partner providers because they also we've never run a study as big before so we also need some need some help to to achieve this yeah when i was reading it i was thinking about the one that came out years ago involving facebook where people weren't they weren't really aware they were part of an experiment and then it was like oh yeah by the way you're part of an experiment but for this people were recruited into your study yes all yeah all of the participants were aware that they were part of an experiment and provided uh, informed consent that they that they wanted to participate. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about some of the most interesting ideas that were submitted to you for yeah. for kind of experimentation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think all of the of the twenty five interventions are are fascinating, and I think that you know, like. We also learn a lot from the ones that that didn't have the intended effects because it's like interesting to know, you know, like what didn't work. And many ideas can be can be very smart, but just not effective in the real world. So I would encourage everyone who was interested to go to our website, strengthenedemocracychallenge.org, because we have all of the interventions there, and you can even take them yourself if you're if you're interested in doing so. Like, yeah. Um, I did one this morning. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think that, I think that that really is a, is a resource for like everyone who is, who's interested to see you know, what are people doing and you know, 
maybe maybe develop and fine tune their own ideas or or get inspired by them. Um, one um, intervention that was very interesting and was very effective uh, was to correct misperceptions of the other side. This intervention was developed by a team from from Berkeley and, and MIT, led by uh, Elia Braley um, from, um, from Berkeley. And so the idea was here that maybe some of the support for undemocratic practices is rooted in people thinking that the other side really supports these undemocratic practices. So as a reaction, I think that I have to like support these practices too, because the other side is doing it anyway. And so they um, first collected data from a, from a sample, trying to figure out like, what do people report is their own support for, for these undemocratic practices? And then asked participants as part of our study, what do you think, to what extent do supporters from the other side support these practices? such as denying the, the results of the election. And even though, you know, like you, you may think that there are that there are a lot of people out there who uh, who support that you can just deny the results of an yeah. election uh, that you, you lost, the most common response is still that people say, no, <laughs> you shouldn't do that. So people were like, after they, after our participants, had guessed what they thought was the most common response. They were provided with the real data from the other study that they had run. And so their like, uh, participants oftentimes had misperceptions, thought that the other side would, uh, would uh, endorse undemocratic practices way more than they actually did. Those misperceptions were, were corrected and that reduced you know, support for undemocratic practices, support for partisan violence, and also partisan animosity. So, like that was that was a very successful intervention, very uh, smartly, smartly designed. That's actually the one I took this morning. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's awesome. Yeah. So, let me pause for just a moment. If people are just now tuning in, let's say you're driving around and you're like, "Oh my gosh, red, white, and confused. Who is Heather <laughs> talking to today? This brilliant person that's on the radio talking about these experiments." So. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're listening right now with a conversation between me and Jan Vogel. Jan is a PhD candidate in sociology at Stanford, and he works with a research lab there that has been doing what is called the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. It's with the Polarization and Social Change Lab at Stanford. And so I will definitely include the web address so everyone can go check out some of these experiments that you all have been doing. Now, I know that, you know, we've been talking a little bit about denying the results of the election. And of course, chances are the group that's more likely to deny the results of the election would be those who lost. So in this instance, it would be Republicans. But when you got into your data and into your experiment, you were running this on the attitudes of Democrats and of Republicans, correct? Like, are they, are they similar in their, I guess, pre, like before they take the experiment, are they very similar in the likelihood of having partisan animosity, of being okay with political violence and all those sorts of factors? Um, you know, like this, is, this is a very important question. And you know, um, one question that, that is also like very intriguing for people to know, I think, like, what is just 
the baseline values for uh, for these problematic attitudes. We find that Republican participants in our study endorse some of these problematic attitudes a bit more than than Democratic participants. But overall, the differences are not super big, and you know that might be seen as confusing like given what we see in the real world, right? Because like a lot of the undemocratic efforts happening at the moment, in particular denying the results of election, we see more on the Republican side. And like how I would explain that is, one is like we studied at the voter level. And I think like a lot of the misinformation that is coming is coming at the elite level, right? So like I would say that the differences in terms of support for undemocratic practices between Republicans and Democrats is way more pronounced at the elite level. At the voter level, most people are pretty opposed to undemocratic practices, support for violence. Things look a bit different for partisan animosity, like dislike for the other side is like is very widespread and has consistently increased over the last few decades. However, there's still potential, you know, I would say that, that there was dangerous potential even among democratic voters that if elites would decide to tap into that, um, that, you know, like uh, Democrats could end up supporting undemocratic uh, politicians uh, as well. Luckily, democratic politicians haven't really t- tapped into that very much, but it is but it is dangerous. And the way that we ask our questions are like, you know, would you support a democratic candidate who says that one should not accept the results of an, of an election that one lost, right? So it's also a bit different from like a scenario where you really believe that you won an election, but that election was stolen from you, right? Like that is more of a problem of misinformation, which is like, like we we have another dependent variable that that speaks to that, but our study was like not so much designed to like like we didn't seek out to to get interventions that treat misinformation. So like I think that like that is sort of like in the realm of American politics these days there are a lot of problems and like misinformation is one of the biggest problems, and like our study can speak to that with regard to or can speak to to some extent. But like, uh, you know, I certainly think that, like, uh, that it would warrant another challenge that just focuses on on misinformation. So recently, here in Southwest Virginia, I had a conversation with someone specifically surrounding our current member of the House, and that they continue to say that the 2020 election was stolen. The question was, why do I think that that is happening? Like, why why are people here still electing this individual who has this claim, even though the claim is false um, and is undemocratic? And my response was, well, it's partisanship. That in the end of the day, people define themselves by party and that they're voting for somebody on the basis of party. Um, and I, in in terms of thinking about that, I actually sent some students into the field to do some survey work and ask people, what do you care about? 
what, what do you care about in this upcoming election? Like what, what matters to you in terms of issues? And I don't know if you would find this surprising, but a lot of people here said that the issue that they cared about the most or what they thought was most affecting people was Democrats. And so it wasn't an issue specifically, it was the other team. And I think that that's this partisan animosity that you're studying. Yeah. Yeah. So how can we change that? I mean, okay. For those who are interested in your work and and the, the lab's work, they tested something like it was a 25 different scenarios. Yes. How many of them worked to shift it in the right direction? So it depends a bit in terms of like which outcome we are we're talking about that we're interested in shifting. If we're talking about partisan animosity, then 23 out of the 25 interventions worked. So that was remarkably successful. I think it speaks to the amount of effort that both researchers and practitioners have invested in trying to reduce partisan animosity over the last few years. It's pretty, it's like a pretty young research area, but a lot of people have been very interested in it. And, you know, like in times of replication crisis, like it's great, it's great that we were able to, to find 23 effects. There are also differences in terms of effect size. Um, so we found like uh, four interventions that really stuck out as being the most um, the most effective. And like speaking to your uh, question, um, which you know I think is like fascinating evidence that people are even you know aware and like want to say, well, what I really care about is that Democrats don't win this election. And that's why I, I'm going to 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 vote with this candidate. Yeah, like we also found that um, that while there wasn't so much of a link between uh, partisan animosity and support for undemocratic practices per se, partisan animosity like was associated or like reducing partisan animosity was associated with reducing support for undemocratic candidates as well, which we interpret as suggesting that there is a causal pathway from, or that there might be a causal pathway from partisan animosity to support for undemocratic candidates. The thing is that it's not as strong as some of the other more more direct pathways there, like from, let's say, support for undemocratic principles to support for undemocratic uh, candidates. But if you are able to really reduce partisan animosity by quite a bit, you open up people to consider uh, candidates from the other side as well. And what we found works very well there is to present people with likable exemplars of supporters from the other side. So like for example, the intervention that worked best in reducing partisan animosity is um was a was a heineken ad from some was uh, from some years ago where people with different political ideologies talk about the difference build a bar setting together and then have a have a beer together you know it's like the uh you know the the issues are, are political and uh, and ideological but you see that people can still have uh, uh a peaceful uh, pleasant conversation about this it was also very uh it was also the case for another intervention that presented participants with a series of five different videos where people just talked about you know like 
what people may may miss about them as a person because we oftentimes like don't get a very accurate understanding of who a person is just by just by looking at them or or labeling them in a in a certain way and by the way that was sent in by a team of practitioners who who had developed this idea based on their work in the in the field so it was great to see that that was also highly successful and then the other main main strategy that we found is successful is um building a common identity for republicans and democrats that can be a national kind of identity um so that republicans and democrats are are all our americans that all have the have the best interests for the for the us at heart it can also be something like Republicans and Democrats, or most Republican and, and Democrats voters are actually part of what is called an exhausted majority of people who don't really want to be polarized, but are uh, but are tricked into feeling polarized all the time by by the media and by the most extreme supporters of of either side. So giving a sense of perceived similarity with the other side is another way of uh, of um, reducing partisan animosity. Well, I was thinking as you were talking about Heineken that really the answer is beer. I mean, I, I think that that, that that could have its own uh, undesired side effects, but in uh, but with regard to a certain amount of beer, that, that might be a good idea. Yeah. Right, yeah, because I was thinking about how a campaign might use the the research that you've done to maybe, you know, try to shake things up a little bit, make it so that there aren't as many people supporting a candidate that is saying things that are more undemocratic. So maybe they could create commercials that are like the Heineken commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or maybe they could do some deep canvassing. I know that a lot of political science literature looks at that and, and it's like, you know, if you go up to someone's door and you knock on their door and then they're faced with seeing someone who is not quite like them, but that that can change their attitudes towards that particular type of individual. So maybe exposing people, like if you've got a lot of Republicans, expose them to Democrats. And if you've got a lot of Democrats, exposing them to Republicans and just having beer. I mean, we have to have beer there. (laughs) So now I have one final question about the effects. I know that your team has been looking at whether these things last. What do you know about that right now? Does it seem like they last? Yeah. So once again, the the question depends a bit in terms of the the outcome that we're looking at. And the oh, I mean, the the overall answer is the the effects of a one time exposure to a certain type of uh, intervention decrease over time. Like we did a follow up study, which was like two to three weeks after we had originally. Con- contacted participants, they were contacted again, and we saw, do we still find decreased levels of, for example, partisan animosity? And for partisan animosity, the answer is like, we find that many interventions have lasting effects even after two or three weeks. The effect is like roughly 40% of the original effect. So, you know, like it like decreases quite a bit over time, but it's still there. Um, for some of the other outcome variables, we find that maybe a couple 
or one of the interventions remains in having a significant effect. For example, for support for partisan violence, we still find that that one of the interventions has an effect. By the way, we could only test 10 interventions in the the follow-ups so now it's like one out of 10 not one out of 25 um due to our funding restrictions um for like uh, support for undemocratic candidates i think we also found like two uh or three interventions that had a lasting effect so it is possible but i wouldn't expect these interventions to like be one-time interventions that are total life changers right like i see it more as like we need to integrate the 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 insights or the principle of how they work more into our daily lives in terms of like changing social media algorithm about the about the type of information that we see about supporters of the other party trying to provide practitioners who are who are oftentimes organizing events that republicans and democrats attend in a in a local community setting so that they know that like these when you provide these types of information, that is like something that, that moves people. And maybe if you do that repeatedly over time, at, at some point, that belief becomes more, more steady in people's mind and can really lead to, to uh, lasting changes. And But, you know, like, I, I want to be clear that, like, we were not able to, to demonstrate that with other experiments. It's more uh, like demos, demonstration of, like, uh, you know, like, this can work. Now, let's see uh, if the interventions that had the most promise in in our study will actually be able to have lasting effects in the field. And yeah, we will have a we have a conference tomorrow. Um, tomorrow is September 29th, where we have invited a lot of practitioners from around the country to talk with us about the results, to talk about how they can apply, how they can be applied to practice. And we also have a, a grants program where academics and practitioners can apply together to to test um, to get funding for for tests in the field in the real world, um, trying to apply the the insights from the strengthening democracy challenge. Well, that is fascinating, and I think I should probably apply so we can do something here in Southwest Virginia. That's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of this today, you can catch up anytime on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen in. Just type in Red, White, and Confused. The show also airs on Thursdays at 6 and Sundays at 1. If you enjoyed today's program, feel free to share it with your friends. And also head over to our Facebook page to let us know. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.